Oh God, you, you know everything about us. You um, watched over us as we slept. You caused the sun to rise uh, this morning. God, you uphold all things with the word of your power. And we confess that we are so often ignorant, we are so often skeptical that you see us, that you care about us, that you interact in our world. And so with all of that and all that we are, God, we now come to your word and we ask that you would speak into our lives. Would you take these ancient words and by the power of your Holy Spirit breathe life into us that we might know and reflect the love of Christ more fully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, Romans. Nehemiah chapter 11 this morning. So I'm officially, I guess, preaching on um, Romans 11 and half of chapter 12, but I'm only going to read three verses. (laughs) What did I say? Romans? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. All right. I got my editor down front helping me out. You may have noticed I'm not great with details. Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in, their, in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And so on, and this is God's word. So my wife and I have uh, recently started watching a uh, show called Searching for Italy with Stanley Tucci. He's an actor where he travels to Italy and eats great food, and those are pretty much our two favorite things in the world. So we've been uh, enjoying uh, just following his travels through Italy and eating great food, and we've got great tips on where we'll eat if we ever make it back to Rome again, and so uh, that, that sort of thing. But there was one, one story as we were watching this series that sort of caught my attention when uh, Stanley Tucci was in... Naples, and he tells the story about a, um, a neighborhood, a sort of a suburb that's outside of the city of Naples, and um, I didn't realize this, but the city of Naples is one of the poorest cities in Europe, and in the 60s and 70s, the government built a neighborhood of affordable housing called Scampia, but due to poor planning and due to a lack of resources and due to a lack of Um, access to public transportation, that neighborhood that was built in an effort to provide affordable housing and provide a way out of poverty actually ended up exacerbating the problem. And as that community grew and developed at a certain point, uh, as many as 50% of the residents of Scampia were unemployed 
And the government had no idea what to do, no resources, everything they attempted to do failed, and eventually the Italian mafia took over, and crime and drug use were rampant in that neighborhood. And for about two decades, everything the government did to affect change was powerless. And then in the 90s, the Roma people began to settle in the neighborhood, and if you don't know what that term means, the, the Roma people are often uh, called gypsies, although that's considered a pejorative term. And uh, they began to settle in this neighborhood. The Roma people are a traditionally nomadic and itinerant people. And um, they live in communities across Europe. And a, a population of Roma people began to settle in Scampia. And because of cultural differences, the Roma people clashed with the residents of Scampia until they began to eat together. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, a small group of people made up of both Italians and Roma people founded a restaurant together where they mixed traditional Italian cuisine with traditional Roma cuisine, and people began to come and eat together. And they were able to get into a space, and because of what that space allowed them to do, they did more than just start a restaurant. They, out of that restaurant, grew an after-school program for kids and teenagers. And workshops and job opportunities for women emerged. And they started a theater company because there was a theater below the restaurant, and they began to organize every year an annual carnival for that neighborhood and they held a legal clinic, and they began to offer resources for this neighborhood that had been so deeply troubled. And though that neighborhood still, I think to this day, probably has some significant challenges, things were beginning to change, all because people began to eat together. When I think about what it looks like and what it means for our church to be rebuilding in this time and in this place, that story struck me because I think it's a picture of what can happen. It's a picture of what can happen where a wandering people return from a time of exile and put down roots in a particular place. And through the practice of hospitality and a shared life together, social problems that have been immune to planning and politics begin to recede into the background. We've been looking at the book of Nehemiah as our roadmap for rebuilding. And Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, is the story of God working in and through his people to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem after they had been devastated and God's people had been taken into exile. And it's describing God's work in and through his people in 445 B.C., and yet it's remarkably relevant to our time and our place and the challenges that we face rebuilding in our time. And so this morning, as we look at chapters 11 and the first half of chapter 12, the last list of names, I've mentioned this, there are, there are seven lists of names in um, the book of Nehemiah. And I think what we see here is that God's people are called to rebuild the church in our time and in our place because place matters. And our particular place matters. The place that God is calling his people to rebuild as God's people matters. 
verse 1 and 2 says this, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in, their, in the other towns. And the people blessed all of the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. What we see here is God's clear intention to gather his people in a particular place. As God is um, bringing his people out of exile, and he's, and he's leading them to rebuild and to regather for worship, the leaders of God's people are required to live in a particular place in the city of Jerusalem. And it talks about this practice of casting lots, which we don't really understand, but throughout the, throughout the Bible we, we see, um, and really throughout ancient cultures, you see people casting lots, and it's maybe a little bit like drawing straws or rolling the dice. Uh, it, it's a way to select a person or a thing out of a group of things. And yet it was believed that in God's sovereignty, God could use this random process to clarify his will. His will. And so they cast lots to see out of you know, the, the, the leaders are living in the city of Jerusalem, but out of the lay people, out of everybody else, they took one out of every ten people, and, the, and, and those people were required to live in the city of Jerusalem. And this probably refers back to the way that the priests were selected. Uh, one out of every ten originally selected as a tithe or a tenth of the people that were set apart for God's service. But the emphasis here is on the place on the place. God's people have got to come back to this particular place. As God is rebuilding his people, he calls them back to Jerusalem. God is not regathering and rebuilding his people in any random place wherever they happen to find themselves, but he is calling them to Jerusalem. The place matters. Why does the place matter? Why does the place matter? Well, the city of Jerusalem is the physical place on earth where God chose to make his presence known. In the temple in Jerusalem specifically, this was the place that God physically dwelt on earth. And because heaven is the place where God lives, the temple in Jerusalem was literally heaven on earth. And it's been said many times that the story of the Bible is a story of God bringing his people from a garden to a city. The Bible starts in the Garden of Eden, but God, as he draws his people together, as he gathers his people together, he brings them to a city, out of the garden and into the city. And the story of the Bible is that the whole of human history is about moving towards a city, the New Jerusalem, as the final chapters of Revelation indicate John narrates the vision he saw where he says, Behold, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and a loud voice said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with humanity. Revelation 21. And so as God is rebuilding his people, he is gathering his people in a particular place, not just wherever they happen to find themselves, not some random place, but a a very specific place. Jerusalem, because God's intention is to live in the midst of his people. God's intention is to dwell with his people so that his people can worship him, and as they do, his people can become a blessing to the whole world. 
Now you might be thinking, well, that's interesting, but I've never been to Jerusalem. (laughs) I have no real intention of going to Jerusalem. What does that have to do with us? Well, as the story progresses into the New Testament, what we see is that God comes and dwells in the midst of his people, not in a building, but in a man, in Jesus. And in Jesus, God takes on flesh, and Isaiah had prophesied that his name would be, that he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so as Jesus comes, the presence of God is no longer hidden away in some building behind curtains where access is is limited and restricted, but love, God walks in human flesh as he walks in our midst. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, it says in the Gospels that the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two and that the Spirit of God rushes out into the world. And when Jesus ascends after his resurrection, when Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes and lives not in a building, but in you and in me. And so the temple of God is no longer in some building in a city on the other side of the world, but each Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Each of us is a little temple in which God's presence dwells, and so the presence of God isn't, isn't in a particular geographical location, but it is scattered across the globe wherever Christians are found. And so what that means for us is that as we rebuild the church in our time, place still matters. Place still matters very deeply, but the place is not the city in, of Jerusalem, Because God's presence indwells you and God's presence indwells me, this place, the place that he has called you, matters. Place still matters. It's the place where God has called you and where God has called me. So, I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, most of you know my family moved here from Southern California five years ago, or five years ago, five months ago, details again. And it's been great getting to know this place. I mean, it's beautiful. It's not a hard place to love, is it? And it's funny because before we moved here, a lot of people told us, especially coming from California, you need to change your license plates immediately (laughs) because people in Colorado hate people from California. And I have a Colorado driver's license, and one of our family's two cars has Colorado license plates, but the other doesn't, and it has not been a problem at all, because as I've gotten to know you, and as I've gotten to know neighbors and other people I've met, one of the things I've found is that almost none of you grew up here. (laughs) (laughs) And so you might have moved here from California or Georgia or wherever, and like nobody's offended by California uh, license plates. Almost everybody moved here from somewhere else, and It's interesting because before I was here, I was a pastor in Southern California, and when I met people in Southern California who had moved from somewhere else, I said, you know, what brought you to California? And they always said my job. You know, I got a job, and so our family moved here from the Midwest or from the East Coast or whatever. As I talk to you and as I talk to others I've met in, in Colorado, very few people say that. Almost without exception, people who moved to Colorado say, I wanted to move to Colorado, and so when I got here, I found a job that would allow me to live here. But I think what this passage is suggesting to us is that behind our 
personal circumstances and motivations, God is at work moving you and moving me to this place at this time because place matters. And God has a purpose for you in this place and in this time. And if I can say this, um, you know, without being, you know, self-indulgent or self-referential, like, that's pretty clear in my life, isn't it? Right? I mean, a couple years ago, the table identified a need for an additional pastor, and through a variety of circumstances, God called me and my family here for this specific time. But the question I would want to ask you is, why do you assume that that's true for me and it's not true for you? See, whatever our motivations for wanting to move to Colorado, underneath and behind our desire to ski or snowboard or hike or run or live in the mountains, God is at work because place matters. We live in a time where the goal of life is self-optimization, or at least that's what we think. And so we think, if I want to live in a certain place, then I'm just going to move there because it'll make me happy. And I wonder if part of what it means for us as a church to be part of rebuilding this church and the Christian church after an incredibly disruptive period of time, part of what that means for us is recovering a view of a God who is big enough to say to people, I need you over here because I have a mission for this place and for this time and I need you to be a part of that mission now. I mean, that's clear in this passage, right? God says, if you're going to be a leader in my church, you're going to get up and you're going to move to this city. (laughs) And then out of all the rest of the people, God selects, you know, in his providence, what appears to us somewhat random, 10% of those people and says, you're going to get up and you're going to move to this place. And I don't know why we would assume that the God who did that in 445 BC isn't doing the same thing with us today. And as we live in a time where people are moving increasingly so that they can live by people who vote the same way that they vote, if part of the oddity of Christianity might look like a people who say, I'm I'm committed to this place that God has put me down because place matters and because God is using me in this time and this place, might we look at the God of the Bible and conclude that he is audacious enough to call us to this place. That he was using our circumstances, our desires, our motivations to get us here to be part of his kingdom mission. You know, maybe you've moved here for a job or you've moved here for school or study and maybe you're in a place where you know that because of your job that in three years you're going to be transferred somewhere else or you're going to graduate and you're going to move somewhere else and and, and obviously, God moves people from here elsewhere, too. And so there's no you know, guilt in saying you have to stay here. But while you're here, and if you're here, would you see your presence in this place as part of God's plan for this place and for you? I tried to pull up some statistics um, this week which meant I asked Brad a question, and I said, do you ever done any demographic (laughs) research on this area? And he said, it's been a couple years, so I I think these numbers are accurate, but maybe a couple years old, that within a 10-minute driving radius of where we meet, 110,000 people live, and in that same 10-minute driving radius, there are 10 churches. 
I know you're mostly engineers, so you're a lot quicker at math, so I had to look this up. That's 11,000 people per church. 11,000 people per church. The region is expected to grow by 20% in the next five years. Now, again, those numbers might be a little bit dated, but as I drive around, there are houses going up everywhere, aren't there? And for those of you, the few, the proud, the born in Colorado, uh, you could look at that and just lament what used to be, right? Or we could together look at what God is doing and see that God is bringing people to this region from all over the place. And that, you know, as I drive around, it just feels like this place is going to explode in the next 20 years. And God is bringing people from other states and other nations to our doorstep. He's brought you here to partner with him and his mission for as long as you're here because this place matters. The second thing I think we see in this passage is that every single person matters. Every single person matters. I have um, mentioned this several times. There are seven lists of names in this book where you read through and, you know, sometimes it sounds like you're reading a list of names of people from Lord of the Rings. Um, why? Why are, why did, why, like, wouldn't one be enough? Okay, we get it. There are a lot of people who are part of this work. Why are they here? Here what we see is that they're organized by family and by geography and by vocation. But what struck me as I studied this passage this week is the numbers in the numbers that will describe a family group or a, or a vocation and that it will say, and this is how many men there were in that group. And, you know, just to kind of select one of these at random, if, if you look at verses 7 and 8, it says, These are the sons of Benjamin, Salu the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Kaliah, son of Maasiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. 928. And seven or eight times that I counted in this passage, it gives a very, a very specific number of how many people were in, in, involved in this you know, small part of God's work. You know, 928, not about 1,000, not over 900, not 925-ish, not 930, but 928 people. And none of these numbers are round numbers. And what I have to take from that is that God is paying attention to every single person here who is part of his work of rebuilding the church. And as we rebuild the church in our time, God is paying attention to you and every single person matters. Every one of us, every one of you who God has called to this place, whether you moved here because of the beauty of the mountains and you love to ski, Whatever your reason, God has brought you here because of who you are and the uniqueness of your story and your experiences. And as those are transformed by the cross, God intends to use you in this place. Every single person matters. Um, some of you know Brad and I host a podcast together. And um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but we, this past week we interviewed Russell Moore, 
who until recently was a very prominent figure in the Southern Baptist Convention until he left pretty dramatically over the summer. And um, incredibly kind man. It'll be on our podcast in a couple of weeks, so be sure to like, subscribe, and share it with all of your friends. (laughs) Please. But Dr. Moore told this story. He told a story about his dad. And uh, he, he, he actually wrote an article that he published a couple weeks ago with, uh, about this. But the, the article was titled, uh, What My Dad told, Taught Me About Loving People Who Have Been Hurt by the Church. And Dr. Moore told us this story this week. And um, he, he said that his dad had been uh, the son of a pastor And his dad, Dr. Moore's dad, had seen how churches often beat up on their leaders. And so um, his dad really did not want Russell Moore to become a pastor. But when he did, he supported him. And Dr. Moore said as a young man, he saw his dad's conflicted relationship with the church as a weakness and a sign of the weakness of his dad's faith. But over time, he had realized that his dad's experience had given him compassion for those who have been hurt by the church. And um, in his article, he wrote these words. He said, let's not mistake hurt for rebellion. Let's not mistake trauma for infidelity or a broken heart for an empty soul. We can only convince people not to give up on the church if we likewise refuse to give up on them. And um, (laughs) I share that with you because that's some of your story. Some of you have those stories, and we need you. And I need you because that's not my story. I love the church. (laughs) I mean, I've seen bad things happen in the church, but gosh, when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, the church saved my parents' marriage. You know, and when I was a wandering teenager, the church grabbed hold of me and gave me purpose. And when I was an adult, the church gave me a vocation. I love the church. And I think you probably need a pastor who loves the church. But I need your story and you need mine. My story isn't enough alone and neither is yours, but together, God is bringing us together where through worship and community, he's interweaving our stories together so that we can live with conviction and compassion as we carry out God's mission in this place and in this time. Because place matters and every person matters. And because every person matters and this place matters, what we see is that God has a strategy for the work that he is doing. I didn't read the whole passage, but if we had taken the time to read... And to read all of these names, you know, you, you read these lists of names as you read through the Bible sometimes, and, and you only, you know, really 
tend to read them if you have some goal of like, I got to get through this chapter this week or something like that. And it can sound at first like it's just a bunch of random names of people who are all in a place at the same time or something like that. But once you stop and slow down and you start to understand who these people are, that these people have particular stories and experiences, and you begin to, to see what those stories and experiences are, you begin to realize that this, this passage right here in Nehemiah 11 and 12 is a very organized and intentional strategy. This is not just a list of random names. I mean, look at verse 9 just as a sort of example of this. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hashanua, was second over the city. There's a group of people, and there's a clear hierarchy, not in terms of worth, but in terms of authority. Why? Because they're trying to get something done. There's work to be done. They are rebuilding God's people together. And what you see is that they're organized and the work is divided between people because if you're trying to do everything, you're going to accomplish nothing. And so the work is divided between groups of people and there's clear authority and who's responsible for what. And there's a strategy and a lot of that strategy revolves around geography and affinity. A lot of that strategy revolves around getting people into smaller groups because they live close to each other or because they care about the same things. And at the risk of stating the obvious, as the table engages in the work of rebuilding the church, our church, in this place, in this time, we're not just doing random things. We're not just doing random things in the hope that God is going to somehow bless them. But there's a strategy. And our strategy involves getting people organized into groups so we can care for each other and so we can work together. And that's always been the table strategy. And there's a strategy that's in operation and maybe sometimes it's not very clear and maybe sometimes it's more clear, but even this week as Brad is kind of coming back from paternity leave and we're, and we're talking about what do the next couple of months look like We've been talking about our strategy, and I think that there are a couple things that are very clear. I think what's been clear is that at the table, in its history, there has been a very clear and vibrant culture. And it's a culture that has, um, that has been welcoming to people. And it's a culture that has empowered people to operate in their areas of strength. And it's a culture that has welcomed people to bring their doubts and hurts and struggles. And it's a culture that has made room for people to use their gifts. And that's beautiful. But it's perhaps in the midst of that been harder to articulate a a culture or strategy for how do we grow and how do we help people mature. And so it was a strategic decision, you know, beginning, I don't know, a couple years ago probably to hire a second pastor to focus on those areas. And one of the challenges that we reface in this time as we are rebuilding is to maintain that clear culture of welcome while also adding to it a culture of growth, a culture of becoming 
more fully the people that God has called us to be. And so in the coming weeks, I'm sure we'll be sharing with you more details about what that's going to look like, but in, in big terms, it's going to look like gathering a team of people. I'm going to be leading a team of people to care about discipleship and spiritual formation and to begin to do that work so that we can champion it for the sake of our church as a whole. A group of people to intentionally do the work of discipleship and spiritual formation. Because our goal is to be not simply a church for our own sake, right? But to be a church for the sake of this place. That we might gather for worship and that in gathering for worship that God might form us into the sorts of people who more and more reflect the image of Christ in our world and then we move out into the rest of our lives to bring peace and hope to a world that is tearing itself apart. I uh, saw a video a couple weeks ago. You may have seen this if you're on social media much. A video about a group called Dads on Duty. Um, It's a story about a high school in Shreveport, Louisiana that had been plagued by fighting And there was a particular uh, period of time where over the course of three days, 23 high school students were arrested for fighting. I mean, I don't know what kind of high school you went to, but 23 high school students being arrested for fighting was never something that I experienced in high school. And a group of dads decided that they had to do something, and so they just decided to start showing up on campus. And about 40 ordinary dads... You know, the the interviewer there is there talking to him, and he's like, so you have no specific training. You have no expertise whatsoever. And they're like, we're just dads, (laughs) you know. And I've got 40 dads who in shifts just hang out on campus, and they stand there, and they say hi, and they give fist bumps, and they tell dad jokes. (laughs) And the fighting has stopped. It's just gone away instantly. It's made a tremendous difference. And one of the dads said it's made a huge difference, especially for those kids that don't have a dad, because not every kid has a dad. Ordinary people showing up in a place that matters and being who they're supposed to be makes an enormous difference. And that's our strategy. It's not about forming experts It's not about better analyzing everything that's going on in this cultural moment. It's about becoming more fully the people who God is calling us to be. This is why Jesus came. This is why he lived. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. And this is why Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his spirit to live in you and to live in me so that we might be little temples of the Holy Spirit, not in some room on the other side of the world, but in this place, wherever he calls us to, that we might be equipped to be ordinary people called to a specific place because this place matters. This morning, I'm going to um, transition straight into the Lord's Supper. And uh, if anybody has sent um, questions to the Q&A, I will... um, take a look at those and get back to you during the week, but I'm going to move straight to the Lord's Supper this morning because 
the Lord's Supper is really what brings all of this together. It's a picture of what was required in order for us to be these sorts of people. And it's also the, one of the means that God uses to equip us to be the sorts of people who can, like a group of dads, go into a hostile environment and just help it calm down. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you a story about a place that was a mess that began to change when people began to eat together. And really, that's sort of central to what it means to be a Christian. You know, one of the biggest struggles that the early church dealt with was Jews ate different than non-Jewish Christians. They ate different foods, and because they ate different foods, they, they couldn't hang out together, and they couldn't, they couldn't spend time together. And the diversity that God uses as he weaves this tapestry of the church was instead tearing itself apart. And so how are we going to eat together became a, a central question early in the life of the church. And so it's important for, was important for God's people then, and it's important for us now to come back to the Lord's Supper because it's a picture of what Jesus did in order for us to eat together, in order for us to be together. It shows us, the Lord's Supper shows us that God would rather tear himself apart than be disunited from us. And it shows us that because Jesus was torn apart on the cross, God has united us to himself and to one another. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and then he broke it and said, this is my body that is broken for you, take and eat. And after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins, take and drink. As we eat together, we come as people from a variety of backgrounds, the variety of different preferences and views, but we come to one table because we have one Lord who has made us one people. So we don't come leaving our differences behind. We come because the one who unites us is greater than what separates us. If you have yet to come to a place of putting your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you just to remain in your seats. There is no shame in not coming and celebrating something that you don't believe. But if you, however failingly, are trying to follow Jesus and saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and I want you to come as we sing in groups of about 10 or 12. We'll serve one group at a time. Uh, we come in a sort of chaotic, disorganized way because this is a celebration. It's a feast for God's people. It's what God uses to feed us. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that you would use this bread and wine this morning to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. That because Jesus has given everything for us that we might respond by giving ourselves to him. And would you use the Lord's Supper this morning to shape us more fully to reflect his image in this place and this time that we might know you, that we might be reconciled with each other, and we might participate with you in your mission of blessing this world. We pray in Jesus' name.